37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Well, ahoy and greetings from the future. It looks like you stumbled upon yet another hidden treasure episode nestled somewhere around episode 105. Now, what are hidden treasure episodes, you ask? Well, that's a good question, and we don't really know the answer either. Uh, What these are, I think, are the way to give you new content as we continue to put all 250 episodes on the new feed because nobody knew how long this was going to take. Yeah, and it'd be kind of shitty if uh, all of a sudden, like, you're uploading shows and then, you know, you as a listener are going through your feed and, you know, you just got done listening to episode, you know, 101, then all of a sudden it's like, episode 257! And you're like, wait, what the fuck just happened? (laughs) And then next week it's like, you know, episode 107, 108, and then... It just really throws everything out of order, and that that sequence that we got going on, we really, we really like that, and uh, you know. Oh yeah. Plus, it's if we did too much tackled like a a solid topic, it, it really kind of throw, throws it off. So these are just kind of like uh, little bullshit episodes of uh, you know news or just kind of random things that. Um, Maybe we're not really deep diving all that much. I don't know. I'm spitballing here. Daddy's a little <laughs> drugged up from physical therapy. Uh, so, oh, man. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Short answer is we don't want to stop doing content just because we have to deal with this problem because it is our problem to deal with. It's not even a problem. It's our process to deal with, and thus yeah. we don't want to not give you any content. And then it's also kind of fun, because in case you missed any of these, you know, and you see, oh, hey, they finally got 253 on, you'll be like, oh, shit, there's like four or five of these hidden treasures I gotta go dig up in the old stream. Yeah. And that's kind of fun, man. It's like that's a treasure hunt, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our buddy Isaac right now is on his way home from South Africa. And uh, I shot him a message wishing him safe travels. And I was like, hey, there are some new episodes on the old feed. I should say on the new feed. Uh, and he's just like, oh, shit, I got to go digging for those. And that's kind of the idea. These are yeah. fun little treasures you can go dig up. Well, on this episode, the topic became... Paranormal in the courtroom. And it's a bizarre topic that we are definitely going to dig further into and do a deeper dive, but... Presto, you shot me over an interesting article you came across about a lady and skinwalkers. So why don't you take it away, and then I'll have another story to follow up from that. Ooh, yeah. So I was perusing the old Facebook the other day because I had nothing else to do. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's Halloween. Or, you know, that's tis the season. It's spooky season. And so there is a... A lot of different articles floating around the old Facebook about ghosts and goblins and ghouls and zombies and other weird shit. And uh, there was one that was talking about, you know, skinwalkers and Arizona and skinwalkers being real and tourism and blah, blah, blah. And folklore, which is up my alley. So I'm like, oh, my God, they mentioned the word folklore. I got to click on this bad boy and. You know, <laughs> click clack and started reading it. And halfway through the article, 
Um, and this is what I sent you. It says, in 1987, skinwalkers burst into the wider public consciousness when they were used in a defense in a murder trial in Flagstaff, Arizona. The body of a 40-year-old Navajo woman named Saris Sanganzitso were found behind the hospital where she worked. A former English professor at northern Arizona named George Abney was accused, arrested, and taken to trial. The defense argued that a skinwalker killed Sangitso based on the fact that she was Navajo and found with a broken stick across her throat and a clump of graveyard grass near her truck. The defense claimed the two objects were evidence of a skinwalker original. Albany was found guilty at first, but then quitted a year later. So I sent that to you, and you're like, ooh, that kind of opens Pandora's box for this topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I wondered then, have you ever heard of people using a paranormal excuse in their defense in the courtroom? And apparently there's a lot of cases of this. So. Yeah, you, you know, probably the most famous, I would think, would be um, not Poltergeist, what uh, uh, Amityville Horror, right? That, oh, yeah, yeah, holy it, shit, you're exactly right. Yeah, You know, that that. <laughs> that would be the first real big one where, you know, the, the kid murdered the whole entire family and basically said, like, hey, you know, like, I hear I heard voices and the voices, like, told me to do it. Um, and then, I don't, I, I don't know, past that, um, I haven't really, you know, delved into the topic, but then I'm like, holy crap, like, this, you know, now that I got this one, like, this might be a thing where... Maybe we should research this a little bit more because yeah, it's for sure. It's kind of hitting on two things that I love. One, well, three things. One, skinwalkers, which you know, like the Wendigo, Wolfman, like those are probably like my top cryptid. Like everybody goes to Bigfoot, but I think Bigfoot's kind of like uh, it's like marijuana, right? It's your gateway drug. <laughs> like you start taking marijuana, yeah. and that leads you into all the other heavy shit. So I feel like when you're getting into the paranormal, like Bigfoot's kind of what your your gateway drug into the weird and the unusual. And uh, my my daughter and I both love the Wendigo and you know that Native American kind of cryptid folklore shit. And mm-hmm. you know um, I'm a huge crime buff. Like I love like all the different you know murder documentaries on netflix and who did it and how it was done and so you know those cold case files um Mm -hmm. we sit around and watch you know the shit out of that and then you know again folklore right um so (laughs) uh this really piqued my interest so then i'm like okay well we can't we can't build a show basically on like i don't know what was that 15 seconds of me blabbing so i was like i like okay well this actually has a, a name on it because a lot of times, like when you start researching stuff like story, well, you know Terry Johnson, and then you're like, okay, Terry Johnson, Skinwalkers, and like nothing. You're like, what the fuck? So I, you know, Google searched uh, old uh, Sarah here and um, got like twenty of the same articles with the same information, and I'm like, fuck, are you fucking kidding me? And uh, <laughs> halfway through. It was where they they kind of went to a little bit more more detail about George. George um, is also Native American. He became the prime suspect because he was having dreams of her murder, like 
a week or two before she actually died. So when police, uh, so he started telling his friends like, man, uh, you know, having this really weird, you know, nightmare, you know, this Sarah chick, um, like I, I just like, I keep having this dream. Like I'm watching her getting ripped apart by this wild animal and stuff, man. And it's crazy. So then she, you know, like a week later she turns up dead. So, um, you know, people, phoned in uh you know 1-800 crime stoppers and they're like dude this guy has been talking about you know this chick being murdered and he's you know witnessing and having dreams so they they pulled him in and then that became their prime suspect but then um after he was found guilty they they went back and they're like dude this guy was in a sweat lodge the whole entire like week that she was murdered like he was like up in the mountains taking peyote getting all dirty and sweaty like he couldn't have have done it and so I, I thought that w- what was interesting about that w- was the fact that he was actually having you know these premonitions um which was it the premonition of he's somehow tied to the skinwalker or he was the skinwalker like he was turning into this creature then i was like okay well let's let's see if we can find more about the murder and i stumbled across the original a newspaper article, which I'm going to read. So animal hair was found in the, in the mouth and on the mutilated body of Sarah Sangizzo, uh bolsters the claim that she was suffocated by a Navajo witch ritual uh, clad in animal skin, alleges a defense attorney. A scepter placed across the neck of the slain hospital made a clump of grave grass, found near her pickup and animal blood found on a rock near her body are among other evidence that a Navajo skinwalker murder and, uh, and mutilated Sangizzo on June 12, 1987. Man, this newspaper article was not well written back then, now was it? <laughs> Navajo medicine man William King of Tupa City in the Utah State Folk and Utah State Folklore Processor Bear Tolkien, fuck yeah, we got to trust this guy. That's the Lord of the Rings shit right there. Yeah, yeah, sounds about right. A former reservation resident will testify about the alleged involvement of a Navajo witchcraft in the slaying. Bales, the defense attorney, said during opening statements in the first-degree murder trial of former Northern American University instructor George Albany that it this is unmistakable evidence of Navajo witchcraft, which will be presented to support uh, the argument that the 35-year-old Albany did not kill 40-year-old Sangizzo, who was Navajo. Skinwalkers or practitioners of Navajo, fuck, I'm going to really just screw this one, yield Natsui, uh, which... Nailed it. Yeah, which uh, wears skins of animals, usually coyotes, when practicing uh, rituals including murder, cannibalism, and other action that is a departure from the rules of human conduct. According to the book Some Kind of Power, written by Margaret K. Bradley in consultation with Tolkien. However... Prosecutors say that that was a bunch of bullshit. This is a crime of flesh and blood, says Prosecutor John Thompson. This case has nothing to do with evil spirits or supernatural rituals or any of that other bullshit. What defense attorneys called a scepter found across Sangizzo's body was termed a P 
piece of debris by police. It was a stick, said Thompson. What defense attorneys uh, termed as grave grass found near Sangiso's truck was nothing more than a chunk of pavement. And the jury must determine whether it is a significant it, whether it is significant in the case, and and witchcraft expert Tolkien is a folklorist. He will not be here to tell you about science or uh, history. He will be here to tell you about stories. While discounting alleged involvement of witchcraft, Thompson alleged that Albany hunted this investigation uh, like a ghost. Prosecutors will present testimony from Village Inn restaurant waitress alleging that Albany seemed almost obsessed with newspapers' accounts of Sangito's murder on June 14, 1987, the day after her body was discovered on a rocky hillside behind Flagstaff Medical Center. Sangito was last seen alive before ending her work shift at the hospital around 11 p.m. Hospital uh, employees Viola Hollingsworth will testify that she saw Albany enter around the hospital. Now, another article uh, went into a little bit more detail about the condition of the body. So her face was badly bruised. Um, it looked like um, she had been battered, and there were several uh, stab wounds. But then also mm -hmm. chunks of flesh around her breast had been um, basically taken out, like somebody had bit into her, um, like an animal. But those oh, teeth yeah. marks, the bite marks around her breast tissue actually uh, match up to the dental records of Albany. Um, so the fact that that was weird that he got acquitted like a year later because like tons of eyewitnesses <laughs> says he was in a sweat lodge. But his teeth yeah. marks match up to the bite wounds on the victim. So like... Huh. That's uh, something's fishy going on. But again, it remains a cold case. Um, it is back into unsolved mysteries. Nobody knows exactly what happened. And it's, uh, you know, skinwalker related. Huh. I mean, you know, I feel like if it happened today, like mm -hmm. DNA evidence and the fact yeah, that easily. the te teeth marks match up, like you're telling me in like 1987, like DNA wasn't like, that far along like dna was like what the 70s so man you could have find saliva um whatever it is and you know, you know done some scientific witchcraft and you know bada bing bada boom baby <laughs> watch you prove me wrong <laughs> dna evidence was not used in court cases until the mid 1990s so it claims here that 1987 is right around the advent of dna testing due to you know crimes and evidence so you know we were right around the time there that that was hitting the forefront, so I don't Yeah, a little new in its infancy there. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> hey, that's all right, buddy. Yeah. So I was also um, reminded of the story we talked about back in July that happened in Oklahoma. Larry Sanders, if you remember, he killed his fishing partner, Jimmy Knighton, whenever the two of them were out noodling, and then Larry swears that Jimmy was trying to summon Bigfoot to murder him, so he had to kill Jimmy, of course. That way he didn't get killed by Bigfoot. And then wasn't there also a story that we covered early, early, early on in the show about a Kansas trial where the person cut the head off of somebody else claiming they were possessed? Yeah, but I don't I don't know that the, the actual person themselves were claiming that um, they were possessed. 
Um, mm-hmm. so, so there's a, oh, I can't think of his name. Anyways, there's a preacher, a local preacher here in the Wichita area that's, well, I was going to try to get him for an interview, so I don't <laughs> He doesn't listen to the show, so it's probably he's up his own ass. <laughs> is what what I'm trying to say. Like I don't think the rest of the world considers him the the foremost expert on exorcism, but that's mm-hmm. how he builds himself, right? So like if you go on to his website, if you you know you, you go to like the church websites, like you know preacher Jerry is the foremost expert on exorcisms in the United States, and if you have you know demonic possession, blah blah blah, come see Jerry. And so he had been talking to this woman because she was going through like depression and some other things and was like hearing voices. And so, you know, he was power of Christ compels you. And uh, like a week later, she, you know, took out a samurai sword and decapitated a dude. And, and then he went to the police and, and said, like, I, this is a, I think she's criminally insane. This is a case of demonic possession. <laughs> I don't think the, the actual perpetrator of the crime ever said, like, hey, I, I didn't mean to do it. Demons made me do it. It was like this guy was just trying to media hype this up. Um, but, yes, that that was the def- defense that was, you know, ran with the case. Like, the defense team picked up that ball, like, fuck, yeah, criminally insane. This person thinks she's possessed by demons. So the police chief was like, you're out of your fucking element, Donnie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to expert my foot Hell up your yeah. ass. Yep. Well, the story I found was very interesting, and let me just jump into it here. It has to do with a Ouija board. Back in 1994, English insurance broker Stephen Young was found guilty in trial for the gruesome double murder of Harry and Nicola Fuller. When the sentence came down, the Sussex police, as well as the general population that lives there, all believed justice had finally been served. Now, the couple had been found dead on the floor of their home a year earlier back in 1993, with Nicola being discovered to be shot four times and Harry himself was shot once in the back at close range in their cottage in Wadhurst, East Sussex. The couple had just been married six months before their untimely death and they had just rented the cottage between a butcher shop and a village tea room. Their bodies were discovered by police that same evening at their cottage on the high street at Wadhurst after Miss Fuller's parents failed to get a reply from Mr. Fuller on the ground floor on the telephone. And of course, his body was found downstairs and his wife's body was discovered upstairs. Detectives said they were looking for a motive in Mr. Fuller's personal business life and could not rule out the possibility that a professional hitman had been used for the murders. Because there were no signs of forced entry or burglary of the cottage, and Detective Chief Inspector Alan Snelling said other detectives wanted to hear from anybody who had seen Mr. or Mrs. Fuller as of recent. Now, Mr. Fuller, who had a criminal record, was a a car dealer and a property developer who came from Tunbridge Wells, where the villagers said he was a sharp dresser who drove a sports car, and they nicknamed him Flash Harry. The lead investigator for the case, Graham Hill, said the verdict, which followed a five-week jury trial, marked the end of a difficult period and a difficult case. Once the case is over, there was a relief. The case was finished. Obviously, all the people involved in the persecution were pleased with the verdict that he was guilty because there was, as you imagine, a huge amount of work that went into it. So, of course, Stephen Young was thus found guilty. 
But a simple murder case isn't what we're here to talk about, presto, because we came here for some spooky shit. Well, dear listeners, you're kind of in luck, because one month after the trial concluded, a front-page headline of a now-defuncted News of the World newspaper appeared out of nowhere like a shot. It read, Murder Jury's Ouija Board Verdict. Booze, dirty jokes, and then the Ouija board. Now, the report quoted a youngest member of the jury, a 24-year-old named Adrian, who said four jurors had tried to consult the spirits of the dead while locked overnight in the Brighton's old ship hotel. As the other jurors slept that night, a small group sat on the floor, cracked open a few beers, and then got the idea to make a crude version of a Ouija board using a piece of paper, an ink pen, and a hotel room wine glass. They each put a finger on top of the glass and asked the spirits to guide the glass over letters of the alphabet and the words yes or no that they scrawled on the paper with the ink pen. One juror named Ray took charge of addressing the spirit which identified itself as Harry Fuller, the murdered husband. Ray asked Harry, who killed you? And the glass spelled out the name Stephen Young and also the words done it. He said, how? And the glass spelled out S-H-O-T. As the jurors discussed what they should do, the glass then spelled out, vote guilty tomorrow. Now, by the end of the seance, some of the jurors involved were crying, and a couple others would later say they felt they had gone too far by contacting the spirit world. Now, the group retired to their rooms and all agreed not to tell the other jurors what they had done that night. But unfortunately, just a few weeks later, their actions were causing controversy around the world. The startling headline was just the beginning of a case which would become one of the most high-profile examples of juror misbehavior in the world. While researching the Ouija board trial for his book, The Ouija Board Jurors, Mystery, Mischief, and Misery, in the jury room, University of Melbourne criminal law professor Jeremy Gons discovered that the seance jurors were not the actual first group to hear the original trial. An earlier jury had already gone up against Stephen Young in court, but then they had to retry as the jurors had to leave the trial. An earlier jury had been played a tape of the emergency call Nicola Fuller had made between being shot for the first time and ultimately the fourth time causing her death. The telephone operator who had taken Nicola's emergency call thought the attempt to call the police was actually children making a prank phone call, when in reality, Nicola had already been shot three times, one of the bullets had entered her face, thus splitting her jaw and damaging her tongue. When she called the police, she wasn't able to speak properly into the phone when she tried to ask the operator for the police. And sadly, by thinking that this was simply children playing on the phone line, the emergency operator didn't reroute her call to the police, and the police never showed up until later that evening, after the double murder. The jury only lasted one day before one of the jurors wrote a letter to the judge saying she couldn't go on because the evidence was too upsetting. And so at that point, the judge decided, well, okay, that's fine. We'll just have to start again with a new jury because apparently he thought that was way easier than dealing with one solitary juror who was upset. And thus we fast forward to now the world-famous Ouija board jury. 
Now, Professor Gans said that this belies a description of the Ouija board jury as simply playing games with a very important case. It brings home that this would have been a very disturbing trial for them. This couldn't have been a fun trial for the jury, and it made me think that whatever was going on in that hotel room probably wasn't good times for the jury, but perhaps something else, just coping with what they were hearing. And with particularly traumatic cases, it can't be too easy to deal with the gruesome details of what happened, especially because retrial entails putting everybody, the judge, their staff, the accused, the complainant, the witnesses, the jurors, back through the process a second time. So following the revelations in the news of the world, the UK court filed for an appeal which quashed the double murder conviction of Stephen Young and ordered a new trial. Responding to the court appeals decision, Nicola's father said, The Ouija jurors made a complete joke of our daughter's death. Decades after his involvement with the investigation, Graham Hill went on to agree with that assessment. I think this, and I'm going to use the word stupid, but it's far worse than that. This is making an absolute mockery, and it's the most serious type of trial you can have. There's no element of humor in it at all. There's no frivolity in it, and yet those four members of the jury made it a total laughingstock. Professor Gans said, Juror misbehavior will inevitably occur, and this case was unexceptional except for the tabloid media coverage, which no doubt drew even more attention to the case, which may have influenced the decision of the Court of Appeals for the retrial. I don't know, man, if I went to court, I would hope that if they're like, yeah, we reached our verdict via a Ouija board, that that would be enough to demand a retrial. <laughs> there are plenty of other cases this year alone when jurors were reported to have done something fairly odd, either falling asleep, giggling, grimacing, playing Zodoku, and even falling in love with the barrister during court cases. And now as a little epilogue to the case, Young was later convicted for a second time in a normal jury trial and jailed for life. Two consecutive life sentences for the murder of the Fullers. Well, there's plenty of other cases that came up, you know, in hindsight as I was doing a little research right before we started recording, so we're definitely going to have to do another dive into these episodes, especially there is a case of a murder out in Virginia where supposedly the ghost of the victim who was murdered led police to find their actual killer. Have you ever heard of that story? No. Yeah, it's the story of Zona Heaster Shoe, who sought revenge for her murderer in the afterlife when she revealed to police and investigators the person who murdered her after her body was found at the bottom of her stairs. Ooh. Oh. So we'll have to dive into that story when we come back to this topic later on. But yeah, there you go. Plenty of interesting cases involving the paranormal in court. Kind of makes... Uh... You you wonder, like, how do, you know, like, police, if they're, like, stuck in an investigation, um, you know, X-Files always talked about, like, there were several episodes where they hired a psychic and the psychic helped them, like, solve the murder. Like, how does that play out in real life? Like, did the police are like, oh, fuck, do we really got to call this person, like, <laughs> take anything they say serious? Are they completely just, like, pulling it, you know? out of their ass because there there are some people I forget um 
I forget what the term's called, but they're able to like touch an object, right? So they can hold an object and then they can get the complete mm-hmm. hi- history of that object. So it's like the only thing they have in the murder was maybe like the murder weapon. So and they hand it over to the the psychic and they're sitting there and you know their eyes roll to the back of their head and they start mumbling shit like do they take that shit serious has that ever something like that has happened and helped them actually solve the case like it's kind of interesting psychometry i think is what that's called yes there you go look yeah, at that boom look at that yeah well we'll definitely have to go down that rabbit hole a little farther once we get everything caught up and do a bigger dive into that because there are plenty of other great stories that we should cover but for now buddy it's been about a half hour so uh, i say we cut it here yep Cool. All right. Well, in the meantime, folks, we should have the rest of the shows uploaded on the new feed before Halloween. That is the goal, because we have some spooky shit planned, and I'd love to do a nice Halloween episode for 2022. Yeah. Um, as you're listening right now, episodes 1 through 100 are up on the feed, along with this being the third Hidden Treasure episode. So until we get to the new new, why don't you give us a follow on the Facebook the Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. Check us out on Instagram at PXL Paranormal. Presto, any news on the YouTubes? Uh, no, we're still sitting at 213. So, 213? Know. Hey, I'll take it, yeah. buddy. That's not bad. That's not bad. Sweet action. All right. And as always, if you need beard, if you want a beard, if you want to grow a beard that won't, you know, get you misidentified as a, you know, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, or any other cryptid, then you should do yourself a favor and go over to BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order and uh, tame that, uh, you know, man maim and get a, get rid of the unruliness and pick yourself up some scents like Bay Rum, Dundee Cedar, Fresh Citrus, Mint, Sweet Tobacco, uh, I just finished out my uh, tin of classics, so now uh, Daddy's moved on to Bay Rum, so I smell like a uh, you know, Caribbean cruise. Um, it's nice. <laughs> it's refreshing. And then uh, Dobbs, uh, the other day, released that uh, he's got a new Barrel Age special edition, limited quantities. Yes. And yes. Uh, we got to sample and got our very own bottle of the first edition of Barrel Age, which was amazing. So I can only imagine that this second run is going to be even better. So go over to Big Dobbs, use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order. Get it all, get it at Dobbs. There you go. And if you're in the Wichita area, please stop by and see our dear friend Leslie and the rest of the gang at CD Trade Post. And otherwise, on behalf of Big Steven, cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the Paranormal Highway. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the Paranormal Highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.